you have to say it's a part of God's plan or whatever, and then you're getting all those bad. Yeah, the tragedies still happen. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, you shot that down so. pretty quick. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Hey. Hi, Thomas. Hey, guys. Hey, there hey. you are. How you doing? Sorry about that last call. I was stepping away to get some sweats on. I was getting cold. Nice. Yeah. No problem. Thanks. Thanks for hanging with us uh, after a yeah. little miscommunication. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's not your fault. It's all mine. <laughs> well, I'm glad it worked out. Um, I am Zach, and to my left hey, is... Hey, Zach. I'm Jeff. Scott. Jeff. Scott. Excellent. Tell me a little bit about your typical audience or who you think of as your audience. Uh, I would say it's it's probably mixed like we are um, to just, uh, I mean, uh, let's see, classifications and labels only go so far, but we have some conservative representation theologically, and uh, I don't know what <laughs> Jeff is. Jeff's all over the map, and, and I'm... Scott probably thinks I'm a raging liberal or something like that. So <laughs> I love it. Well, let's say raging neo orthodoxical. Uh, okay, yeah. I like this. Yeah. You're still working it out. <laughs> yeah, it probably changes <laughs> weekly. <laughs> but we just and so your audience say, we, has we, that spectrum too. Huh? I, th- I think so. Yeah. yeah, from the feedback, yeah. we we actually get a, a lot of. Um, former conservatives that appreciate and identify with Scott's voice. Um, and, and they'll admit to being a little bit more on my end of the spectrum for lack of a better term. And, but they just kind of appreciate that we don't hate each other, even though it's sometimes it sounds like it. We're we're actually (laughs) all friends and we live nearby. So we're able to get together in the same room and do this. Cool. How'd this uh, begin? I mean, have you guys been doing it for a while or is it pretty recent? About three years. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's impressive. Actually, coming up on three and a half, probably. Okay. Just over 100 episodes, and the idea is weekly, but it's it's two times a month at the least, um, hopefully more. And uh, it, it just sprang out of getting together with good friends, drinking beers, and we all love beer and love talking about real life, and oh. it just kind of came out of that. And all, all of our other friends couldn't show up every week, so, so it just ended up being us. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And you're no so, stranger uh, to podcasting. I mean, in terms of being guests, you've been all over the place with this book. Uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. been a lot of fun. Actually, I was going to ask you about that. Is your podcast uh, only audio, or do you put the video version up as well? We just do audio for now. Okay. We've kind of been chewing on ideas of maybe doing live streams and that sort but for now it's just audio and Mm -hmm. we just like the face-to-face connection if possible when we're talking all right yeah i'll be sure to pick my nose a lot yeah that's fine (laughs) and audience just know that he he will just about every 10 or 15 minutes just assume he's scratching himself or being that's right (laughs) all right well um what uh, one of the questions i like to ask a lot of people is what view of God were you born into? How did you enter this world? Hmm. Hmm, That's a great question. Well, my father was a Dutch Reformed Calvinist. My mother was a Pentecostal holiness girl. So you had two very different traditions that got together 
They moved to a little town in eastern Washington, and there wasn't a Dutch Reformed church, but there was a little Church of the Nazarene, and so we went to that. Um, and actually, I'm still a part of the denomination and, and am an ordained elder. But um, I suspect that I would say my I would say my parents were pretty ecumenical. Um, my dad was kind of one of these guys that even though he was Dutch Reformed, he was sort of just you need to love everybody and don't sweat the details. Hmm. My mom was more into uh, you know powerful religious experiences, healing. Went through a time in our family in which uh, we talked a lot about and participated in the gifts of the spirit. So um, I sometimes like to think of my parents like uh, uh, water or the stream and the soil uh, from which a, a tree can grow. You know, the stream is kind of wild and all over the place. And that was more my mom's style where my father was pretty grounded and, you know, he wasn't dog, dogmatic in the negative sense, but uh, he he didn't. He, he wasn't uh, into flights of fancy and, and demonstrable experiences. Was there any, I'm sorry, was there any conflict at all between your parents in that regard? I don't remember too much, actually. Okay. This, um, you're just a young kid when just growing yeah. up in this? Okay. Yeah. And, you know, we lived in the same little town my entire growing up years. We went to the same church. My parents were on the church board year after year after year. Um, and, you know, the conflicts would be probably pretty, you know, mundane. My mom would want to do something that took more risk than my dad would want to do. <laughs> but it wasn't anything, you know, major. Right. She probably helped pull him along or push him in, in ways that were uncomfortable. And, and when she, maybe she was getting a little bit crazy, he was kind of the anchor dragging behind a little bit. It sounds like it could be super helpful if you do that right yeah i mean yeah ideally it works out well but of course rarely are things ideal um yeah and i've heard you talk previously about going through i don't know experiencing some atheism or dealing with a bout of atheism i don't i don't know too many people that i would i think most people that are atheists probably aren't um i guess that most the most hardened atheists would say they are, but I don't know. I feel like you go back far enough. You can, there's, there's a certain amount of mystery we all have to admit to, but what sure. was that like? How did that come at you? Well, experience? when I was in high school, I had what I consider kind of my major conversion experience. I mean, I grew up in the church, so I went to the altar and accepted Jesus time after time after time. But in high school, uh, there was one particular experience at a church camp that was particularly formative. I took my faith pretty seriously in high school. Um, I was not afraid to talk about, you know, God, religion, etc. When I went to college, I eventually became a religion major, but I was one of these hardcore evangelists. I went door to door in the, in the neighborhood of my university where I was a student I uh, went, did a lot of bar witnessing. I joined Campus Crusade for Christ and spent a summer at Lake Tahoe sharing the four spiritual laws with people on the beach. And uh, I took it really seriously. Um, by about my senior year of college, I took a course on philosophy of religion. And by this time, I would started to grow a little bit disillusioned with some of the witnessing stuff and some of the claims that I was making. Um, 
people weren't converting as quickly as I thought they should. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't see, seeing the miraculous things that I thought I should see. And in this particular course, uh, for the first time, I encountered really smart agnostics, atheists, folks from other religions. You know, as a, as a Bible thumper, I took the Bible super seriously, memorized things. I could, you know, out-argue most people, because most people don't take this stuff all that seriously. But yeah. I did. But in that particular class, I encountered people who were smarter than I was. And... Um, for the sake of intellectual honesty, I had to become an atheist. In fact, I remember picking up my fiance, who's now my wife, and her getting in the car and me looking at her and saying, I just can't believe in God anymore. Wow. You guys survived that. Yeah, pretty wild. She and I were both religion majors, both planning to go into ministry. Um, I didn't give up my faith journey, I continue to stay at it, continue to wrestle with things, and uh, eventually came to the place where I thought it was more plausible than not that God does exist, and that's where I'm at today. I, I'm not certain there's a God, but I think there are good reasons to believe that a God exists. And really two things were kind of instrumental early on and still today. Uh, one is I had this sense that life must have meaning. And I couldn't, I couldn't see how life could have ultimate meaning if there wasn't some ground of meaning. And God functions for most theists as that ground of meaning. And secondly, I had these deep intuitions that I ought to be a loving person, that other people ought to love, that, you know, somehow love was the answer. Um, and I couldn't ground those intuitions if there wasn't an ultimate source for them, uh, whom, again, most Christians call God. And so those two things kind of drew me back to deciding it was plausible that a God exists. I mean, for a long time, I, my, my faith was pretty, pretty stripped down. You know, I believed there was a God and I thought Jesus was pretty cool. And that was about it, you know. Um, and. Still today, I, I continue to work at those things, but that's kind of a that's a major point in my own faith journey. Yeah, and going back to you, so you had a powerful conversion experience, and it sounds like a similarly powerful deconversion experience. Do you remember uh, what was the straw that broke the camel's back, as it were, in terms of like a doctrine or something, some aspect of your faith that you were just like, you know what, that's it, I can't. Well, it was more about arguments for the existence of God, you know. Um, I had seen enough people acting in ways that made me think I couldn't fully trust religious experience, my own and others, as giving a full proof or some sort of proof that there was a God. The argument from design that, you know, this we live in a beautiful and, and designed world, uh, therefore there must be a designer— uh, started not making a lot of sense when I started thinking seriously about the evil in the world and the lack of design. And so these all these things that I had kind of assumed must be right, they just seemed so obvious, now didn't seem so obvious. And uh, so I had to set them aside. Yeah, man. That's, uh, that, so I, I'm sure it's, it sounds like all of this experience, the um, the powerful faith, the healing 
ministry uh, with your your mom in the Pentecostal movement. You talk a little bit about that in the book, uh, which is called God Can't. And that all of that leads up to you. I mean, obviously you've been through a lot, but writing this book, God Can't, is informed by your experience with trying to heal people, seeing that the results didn't take place. Um, at what point do you shift to the more, do you consider yourself an open theist? Yeah, I, I call myself an open relational theologian. And that's the uncontrolling love of God. Is that the book where you go into that more? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you get to a point of open theism and maybe just a little bit of a, uh, overview on what that looks like? Sure. Well, back when I was in college and started kind of working my way back toward faith, um, I decided I wasn't going to sort of shortchange any of my intellectual questions. I was going to pursue them to the utmost. I wasn't going to appeal to blind faith. Not that I had to know everything with certainty, but I had to have some reason, some good evidence, some, some good arguments for the kinds of things that I would believe in. And one of the first questions most people who believe in God want to know, and actually people who don't believe in God, is why would a loving and powerful God not stop the unnecessary evil we find in our lives and in the world? And um, usually people appeal to something like a free will argument, which I like, but I develop even further than most people do. But along the way in that free will argument, people want ask this interesting question. Are we truly free if God knows the future with absolute certainty? In other words, if God knows exactly what's going to happen tomorrow and God can't make a mistake, it seems as if tomorrow has already been settled, already been fixed, already completed. But it's hard to reconcile the sense of being free to choose amongst options if the future is already settled complete, you know, and, and uh, done. So uh, this kind of drew me to this idea of open theology, which is the idea that God experiences time moment by moment like we do, and the future for us is also the future for God, which means that God can know all the possibilities for the future, but not even God can know with absolute certainty what's going to happen tomorrow. Which can be kind of scary like when you first come across that view i mean for me i dabbled in as as i uh kind of grew and matured and then i uh i lost a son about 13 years ago he would be, he would have been 13 on march 17th hmm. um he was four months when he passed yeah. and th- that that kind of changes things it didn't happen right away but it, it does shift things and force you to kind of test what you thought you believed to be true and it makes you struggle and I mean I went through bouts of not Calvin well I guess Calvinism a little bit as a kind of a last ditch effort to find certainty and to protect uh, my view of God um, before I don't know I'm, I just I'm kind of an explorer now and consider yeah. myself a Christian but the open open view of the future is fascinating to me I mean is that pretty similar to uh, you you were just on Trip Fuller's homebrewed Christianity, and uh, now I'm blanking. What what's his theology that he does? It's similar to open theism, isn't it? 
Yeah, I think you know he calls himself an open relational theologian. Relational. Maybe a process theologian. Process, that's what I was looking for. Word. Yeah. 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 How is that similar, and are there any striking differences? Yeah, process theology comes in a variety of forms, but sort of the most common forms are like open theism in the sense that they think that God experiences time moment by moment like we do, and so the future is open. But most uh, process theologians also make some stronger claims about God's power being uh, limited in uh in some essential kind of way. And there's a a lot of different versions of that. I like to say that uh, most open theologians think that God voluntarily chooses not to control us, is voluntarily self-limited, whereas most process theologians think God is inherently limited. And so we need to rethink God's power fundamentally. But those are, that's probably the biggest difference between most openness folks and most process uh, theologians. So how does a God that, I'm, I'm just imagining somebody that believes God is all-powerful um, and created the universe, uh, how does that God lack the ability to control or t- to make things happen? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think a lot of people, when they think about God's power, they'll use the words like uh, omnipotence or sovereignty or something like that. Um, Most people don't take a lot of time to sort of hammer out what the specifics are. And they're surprised if they do a little research to find out that the vast majority of Christian theologians, from conservative to more progressive in Christian history, have said that there's simply things that God can't do. God can't break the laws of logic, for instance. God can't make 2 plus 2 equal 387. God can't make a married bachelor, because bachelors are by definition unmarried. God can't make a rock so big that even God can't lift it. These kinds of things. They're kind of um, rational conundrums or contradictions. And then there are some uh, theologians in Christian history who said that God can't go against God's own nature. And um, there are certain biblical passages that suggest this, things like when the writer of Hebrews says it's impossible for God to lie, or James says God can't be tempted. Many people have said God can't sin. Um, my favorite passage is one in Timothy, in which uh, Paul is writing, and he says, when we are faithless, God remains faithful because God can't deny himself. That's a way of saying that God can't go against God's own nature. And not all theologians will say that, but there are some, especially in the Wesleyan Arminian tradition, and Thomas Aquinas, etc., who will say this. What I've done in, this, in my own writings is taken that idea that God can't contradict himself and said this. What if we think that God's very nature is love? We take this, you know, Johannine phrase, God is love, very seriously— And we think God's love is necessarily self-giving and others-empowering, which means if God has to do that because it's God's very nature, God simply then cannot control those he gives to or empowers. Now, a lot of people kind of like that when they're talking about free will creatures, and I do too. But what if we said that's true of all reality, from the most complex to the least complex? 
if we said, because God loves everyone and everything, and because God's love is inherently uncontrolling, God simply can't control anyone or anything. That's kind of the fundamental idea I'm working with in this book, God Can't. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and I, I, um, I, the other aspects of God's nature, I would, I, I, as I was reading, I was kind of incorporating the other aspects because I don't, and I, th- I think the idea of, or one of the reasons why there is evil, if we go back to that question, yeah, is, or stems from God's very nature, um, and it's not just love, but it's uh, grace. Uh, a, you know, a merciful God, a graceful God, um, but also a God who, uh, uh, who, uh, by his own, by God's declaration, he judges, you know, he judges his creation. He holds people accountable for their sins. Um, that these are not attributes that God takes on uh, at some point. He is always these things. So when the Bible says, that God is love, that might be the only statement where it says explicitly God is this attribute. However, um, I don't think from that we can say that God is not these other attributes because he doesn't at some point later on take them on. He's always had these. I think yeah. from that, the the merciful aspect, the forgiving, the grace, um, I think that's another reason why there's free will because if there wasn't free will then there would be no grace there would be no uh there really wouldn't be love um in 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 that's love would be a different concept we wouldn't we wouldn't know what that is um but it's yeah it's from it's from god's very nature that that uh in order for god to be merciful there has to be something uh some 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 reason to give to, to be merciful. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sounds like you yeah. and I think similarly on this. I'm, I don't think love is the only essential attribute of God's nature. I think there are other attributes that are essential. But one of the things that makes my view a little bit different from some people is I, I make this kind of technical claim. I say love is logically primary in God's nature. And that means that I think it makes best sense to understand the other divine attributes in the light of love. So, for instance, here's something that probably most of your listeners have not really thought about, but just an interesting question. Could God choose not to love? Now, there's some in the Christian tradition who've said, yep, God sure can, because God is sovereign. God can choose whether God wants to love or not, because that's God's sovereignty. I'm in the part of the tradition that says, nope, God must love because it's God's very nature and God can't choose not to love. And if you start then working through the implications of that view and then say that this love is necessarily self-giving and others empowering, you start to move in the direction that I do in this book and some of the others I've written. Yeah, this also, (laughs) this is touching on something Scott and I talk about a lot and have been... uh... I mean, sometimes more than talking, too, it, it elevates beyond just talking. <laughs> <laughs> Gentle arguments. But, uh, <laughs> but the, like, the implic, like, are there implications that are challenging to, you know, as a, as gr- growing up a Christian, most of us, 
want to have kind of a foundation to know what is and isn't in or, you know, what's out, what's in, what's acceptable. When is, when does forgiveness happen? And, you know, up until a few years ago, I, you know, I wouldn't say what, where I'm at now, which is that I think forgiveness is the reality that people, there's already forgiveness. It's just people don't, just don't know it yet. They're not awake to it, um, right. which is challenging. It's super challenging and creates a lot of problems depending on, you know, what you, how you view the Bible as authority or which parts are authoritative or not. And that sounds like you, you probably have a particular view of scripture that allows you to write this book because you're making certain claims that are really challenging given some other uh, parts of the Bible that talk about God in different ways, or at least appear to. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think the broad biblical witness points to the kind of theology I present in this book. That is, I think the broad biblical witness points to a God of steadfast love who never does evil, who is always forgiving, merciful, etc., I think the clearest revelation of that kind of God is in Jesus Christ. But I'm not a person who says, well, it's obvious that every last passage of Scripture supports that view, because I've read the Bible, (laughs) and uh, there are some passages that just don't jive well with that view, especially in the Old Testament. So I don't think the Bible is a systematic theology. I think it's like a library, a collection of books. And for many, many years, I thought I could try to reconcile those difficult passages, especially in the Old Testament, passages that say things like, God wants the Israelites to bash the baby's head against the rocks. Right. I thought, well, maybe there's just some way, if I just look at it, squint at it in the right kind of way, then maybe that's really a loving thing. But I've come to decide that I don't want to try to do that anymore. Yeah. I don't want to pretend like the Bible is some coherent systematic theology when it just doesn't look like it. And so I'm to the place now where I can just say, you know what, I think some biblical writers got it wrong. They're actually in error in their view of God. Now, I say that not because I'm some 24th century postmodern enlightened person. I say that given my reading of the broad biblical witness and especially the witness of Jesus So I'm privileging what I think is the majority witness and saying that there are some minority witnesses that don't fit well with that. And I'm comfortable with saying those minority witnesses are wrong. Now, I'm not interested in going into the Bible and cutting them all out, you know, like Thomas Jefferson. uh, But um, I am willing just to say some things in Scripture aren't true. Now, are um, two questions there. When you say that uh, God is not capable of evil, um, the evil that how would, are you defining evil as uh, you know things that evil people do, or um, does that also include uh, things like uh, flooding the world and killing innocent uh, women and children? Is that evil, or is that uh, uh, something that God actually did? Well, you know whether it's the entire world or not. If it's, even if it's local, it's still um, yeah. women and children, right? So, uh, Yeah, so I would define an evil as any event that all things considered make the world worse than it might have been. Now, there's obviously some subjectivity in that definition. Like yeah. there's no obvious standard that we can all inerrantly 
uh, know with absolute certainty. We all have to make judgments. Now, almost all, well, I go so far to say every single one of us thinks some things are genuinely evil. It's, it's what I call an, uh, an experiential non-negotiable. But we have lots of differences of opinion uh, on specific um, I don't know what your views of you three are on issues like abortion or homosexuality or these sorts of things, but lots of really smart, loving Christian people disagree on these things. And uh, I th- I'm fine with that kind of disagreement. But so long as any one of us looks at any particular event and says, you know what, that event made the world worse than it might have been, then I say we are judging it to be an evil event. And since most Christians think evil or sin is evil, most Christians believe at least some of us have done evil. Yeah. So then we look at these big events like the flood. Is that an evil event? Well, I think people are going to have differences of opinion on that. I personally think of it as evil. I think of it as uh, probably actually occurring in history in a probably not a worldwide flood, but in a you know a regional area. And I think the authors attribute this to God as a way to try to explain what's going on. I think there's some positive messages that come from that particular story. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not going to fight over that one very much. Uh, The ones that I'm probably going to fight more over are instances of rape or torture. Um, I can't think of a single instance of rape and torture that is good. So I'm going to say those are all evil. And most people are going to say that as well. Kind of, I don't know if this is related, but your the purpose, um, not the purpose, but your audience. When you wrote this book, did you have an audience in mind? Yeah, I did. You know, I I wanted this to be the kind of book that my mother could read and understand. <laughs> Scott and I were just talking about that. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah uh, I had written this previous book, The Uncontrolling Love of God. That you know, it's fairly easy to read, but it's published by a scholarly press and. Um, you know, it helps to have a theology degree to read that book. And this one, I wanted just anybody to be able to pick it up and understand it. So I worked super hard to use uh, easy to understand language. And I particularly wanted people who have been, who have suffered, who are victims, who are survivors. I wanted them to read this book and say, here's somebody who actually understands me and is willing to think outside the box in understanding how God is not responsible for what happened to me. Yeah, I love how you weave in a lot of stories. and this, mm. Most of them sound like they're of a personal nature, stories that are personal to you or people you know. Yes. And that is so helpful because what I'm learning and... Um, Especially um, what I'm learning now is that social media, you can post the perfect article that has all the facts for whatever you're talking about. And it's just going to make the person you're trying to change dig in. And (laughs) I know there's a a technical term for that breed of cognitive bias, but I'm blanking on it right now. But it's like the backfire effect, maybe. I don't know. But people just dig in in the face of facts that are contrary to what, what they hold. Yeah. But stories, like little seeds get planted when you hear people's genuine experiences. And I know sometimes experience can be subjective and ha- wh- sure. what they think it means. That all that's true, too. 
but stories really help and they're like peppered throughout each chapter um which is great and then you have like the questions at the end it's a good discussion book it's not a long book and like you said you wrote it simply for people like me (laughs) i was telling scott i like consuming intellectual stuff but a lot of times it's I'm enjoying hearing it, but not a lot of it gets retained that I know about. It just goes right over my head. So I appreciate it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But going back, you kind of answered this before. Um, This, where was that? Okay. Looking at my note sheet, I had it. Uh, It was related to love. You kind of define, you define love as, I think you're describing agape love, other centered, self-giving love. And he said, this book is for those who want to love, to be loved, and to live a life of love. Um, how do you know any... Let's see. You say... Okay, another thing you say, which I love. I'm using the word love a lot. Way too which much. Is, which you do. <laughs> I blame you. You started it. <laughs> but you say uh, that what we think is loving is what God thinks is loving. Um, how would you recommend, how do we know when those don't necessarily match? If somebody thinks that their view of love doesn't seem to match up with what you say God is. Yeah. Well, one of the things I've done in a lot of my writings over the years is work on defining love in a particular way. And I define love as acting intentionally in response to God and others to promote overall well-being. And I think that definition of love applies both to love in our domain and also God's love. Um, So um, what I'm trying to do in that part of the book is to say to those people who sometimes will say, well, you know, God's ways just aren't our ways. And so you might think that's evil, but really from God's perspective, it's a good and loving thing. And I think that kind of appeal to mystery um, doesn't work. At the end of the day, it means that what we think, if if what we think is loving, God thinks is evil, or what God thinks is loving, we think is evil, then I think we should just stop using the language about God being loving, because it doesn't correspond to what we think loving is. Mm. So um, to those who think they can uh, get around the problem of evil difficulties by just saying, you know, God's infinite and we're finite, our language doesn't match up. I want to say in the book, that's a cop-out. I won't, I won't go that direction. It's tough to be in a situation, um, I mean, personally, if you have something that happens to you that is evil, and, and then you have your you know, friends gathering around trying to love you, saying, well, God loves you, and you're right in the middle of you know, a hurricane of a mess, whatever it might be. Um, and do you have a, a a story you could share or something, you know, from the book um, in that regard? You know what? I've got next to me here a little copy of a bunch of uh, stories people have sent me after reading the mm. book. So these aren't in the book, but uh, this one particular one comes to mind. And it does a nice job of, I think, addressing a really common way people try to Uh, solve the problem of evil. And that is, they'll say, well, God allowed that bad thing to happen. God permitted it. Right. You know, God, God, God allowed you to be raped, which sounds like, um, you know, God didn't do it. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness. But uh, since the people who say this want to think that God could have controlled to stop it, 
They want to say that in some mysterious way it's good and God permitted it. So this one woman writes me this, um, I think this was on Facebook originally. She sent me a face private message. So I will tell you a bit about my story. I'm a survivor of sexual abuse, a lot, and for a long time by my brother. In the midst of the worst years of my life, I had a very vivid dream of God walking over to my bed as I was being raped. He simply reached out and held my hand and cried. For a few short days, I was elated. God hadn't left me after all. Then came the anger. Anger that God was there, and instead of stopping it, he simply held my hand and watched. For a long time, years, I was angry about that. I prayed for a breakthrough, but I never got it. So now, paging through your book, praying and contemplating, I can see more clearly what may have been happening God could not stop my brother. God gave free will. How could God have stopped him? The reality is that God couldn't, not that he didn't. For me, this is a complete game changer. So when people read this particular book who've gone through difficult times and hear the kinds of cliches and attempts people make to give some kind of reassurance. Um, They see in this particular book a different way of thinking about God. Um, And I think most people who say those cliches have good motives. Mm -hmm. I'm not not doubting them at all. I just think that um, those typical answers don't make a lot of sense to victims of horrific evil. Yeah, the the idea that um, God did this or allowed this so that you can X... Um, it, yeah, I don't, I don't like that either. If, uh, or even worse, to his glory, to because he was somehow yeah, he's, for he's his glory. Be yeah, yeah, because if yeah. God's going to use a mechanism, if God can use a mechanism, or He chooses to use a mechanism to get you to a certain point of being more faithful, or more loving, or more patient, um, or or especially enable to help uh, to be able to help other people who go through the same thing. Well, if God's going to use a mechanism for that, why, why, why would He choose yeah. like, the worst <laughs> Some thing thing. to uh, yeah. get you to that point? He could use a different mechanism if you know. <laughs> it's like He's choosing to. Yeah, do <laughs> that's one of the ideas I spend a whole chapter on in the book because I think so many people have seen some good things come out of rotten situations. You know, how many times you've been in a small group? Or, you know, my home church when I was a boy, we had testimony nights and people stood up and testified and they'd say something like this. You know, this last month has been so hard. This bad thing happened. That bad thing happened. But praise God, I have the victory. This good thing has happened. And they'll give the impression that God wanted all the bad Mm. in order for the good to come out at the end. I like to say this. God squeezes good out of the bad God didn't want in the first place. 
So we can say to all the people who learned or grew or had something positive come out of the negative, yes, that's a good thing. And God is with you and was working with you to squeeze something good. But we don't have to say God either caused or even allowed mm-hmm. the rotten stuff at the beginning. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, that's a po- back to the, your, the email or the, whatever, the Facebook message or whatever you received from that woman. It's a powerful thing to have written and then to get feedback like that. Yeah. That's amazing. It's helpful. The, the idea that God can't is helpful, and I identify with that more than I don't, I think, if that makes any sense. But I still really, I don't know, it's just, it's still a little bit foreign, that the idea that yeah. God can't heal. I mean, I, one, um, some fruit of my shifting theologically has been praying far less for anything, for stuff, for uh, requesting things of God for people, even if it's good stuff uh, or appropriately placed, if it's healing, it's health, it's protecting family, all that stuff. That's happening a lot less, uh, and I'm... I'm okay with that, but you know, I still have that those roots where where I, I think is that okay? Like, should I be? How do how do I cultivate a prayer life or communion with the Creator? Like, what does that look like for somebody that's kind of struggling that that gets it, but it's just not quite yeah. there and can't? I don't take myself seriously if I'm asking God for almost anything because it seems yeah, silly. Yeah. That's a good question, and I'm assuming here you're talking about what most people call petitionary prayer, yeah, that is. Or intercessory. God. Yeah. Yeah. I think, this is going to sound bold, but I'll say it anyway. Do it. I <laughs> I think this view that God simply can't single-handedly bring about events makes a lot more sense when it comes to petitionary prayer than the alternative ideas. So let me explain. There's some people who think that God causes absolutely everything. Obviously, in that situation, it's hard to imagine that your prayers really do anything because God's already going to cause everything. Um, But most people think something like this. God could control things, but God generally has a hands-off policy. And if I pray, maybe God will intervene and single-handedly fix Aunt Mabel's cancer or, you know, do something miracle. But think about what this really means if you think God is perfectly loving. If God is perfectly loving, wouldn't God want to fix Aunt Mabel's cancer even if you didn't pray? In fact, doesn't it sound kind of weird that God would be sitting around waiting for you to pray before he would heal Aunt Mabel's cancer? It's like, you know, God saying, you know, you've prayed 38 times, but I'm not going to act until you get up to 67. You know, that that makes no sense. So if you think God can single-handedly fix things and you think God is perfectly loving, I say, why pray at all for other people? Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe pray for yourself, but even then, God should fix your own problems even if you don't ask. I mean, if my kids have got some major problem and let's say one is going to die, I'm not going to sit there and think, well, you know, unless you ask me to help out, I'm not going to save you from dying. I'm going to jump in and save her, you know, if I can. My way of thinking says this, God can't single-handedly rescue you, 
But because you pray, you can open up new possibilities for God to act in the world. Along with the idea that God can't single-handedly control, I also think that we live in interrelated universe, and one person's action affects not only their bodies, but others. And since God is omnipresent, God is present in all those places as well. So our prayers can really make a difference, can really open up possibilities for God to act that may not have been possible had we not prayed. So in this particular scheme, petitionary prayer, at least as I see it, makes a lot more sense. So so you, one of the words, I think you use God influences things. I think you yeah. describe that. And sure. so I'm wondering at what point, and this maybe this is an impossible question to ask. Obviously, at some point, the, there is a mystery. But at what point is does influence become almost controlling? Like there's that enough that 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 gray line, or as it approaches, yeah. like it approaches controlling. But Scott's doing awesome hand motions. Yeah, uh, <laughs> asymptote. You know what I'm talking about, right? Oh yeah, exactly. Thank you. I don't think God's influence is ever controlling. Okay, but. I think when we or others or even smaller entities cooperate with God, then God sees the results that God wants. So God always acts. God always acts influentially at every level of existence, at every moment of everything, all the time. And when creatures cooperate or the conditions of creation are right, if we're talking about inanimate objects that don't have the capacity to cooperate, when creatures cooperate, then good things that God wants happens. Maybe yeah, you, I, I should... Oh, go yeah, ahead. You say the, uh, from the smallest atoms, cells, and organs to animals, persons, and societies. So God yeah. seeks teamwork at every level. But when creatures fail to cooperate or the conditions are not right, God's work to heal is frustrated. That's on page 93. Yeah, so I do believe in a healing God, but a, not a God who can heal single-handedly. There has to have, be cooperation at some level, or the conditions have to be right. Mm. Yeah, there's a purpose. Like we have a purpose behind our, our praying or our practicing, whatever it might be. It could yes. just be uh, playing piano or uh, sport or whatever it might be. But when we're praying, just as we practice those um, things in our lives, we, I want to say, like, I was a, used to be a coach, but there's like, you know, you get into a zone where, you know, things yeah. become a lot easier, more manageable, easily understood compared to if I just sat around, didn't pray at all and just expected God to, you know, change things in my life um, by acting, by not acting at all. And so I totally, I totally understand where you're coming from with the thought of, you know, be in, there will be influence from God if you're praying, if you're in it with with God as opposed to just sitting on the sidelines. Yeah, yeah. And my my proposal goes even further than most people want to go on that particular point. There's a lot of theologians today who will say something like this. Um, you know, isn't it amazing that the God of the universe invites you to participate in what God is doing in the world? And they give the impression that if you choose not to participate— well, God's going to go ahead and get the job done without you. God doesn't really need you because God has the kind of power to single-handedly bring about whatever result God wants. 
But in my scheme, God really needs you. Things can go to hell in a handbasket if we don't cooperate. And that puts a lot of responsibility on our shoulders. And I think means that our lives truly count, are ultimately significant. We're not screwing around, playing games. This is the God of the universe who is in a love relationship with us and really needs our cooperation if love is going to win. Yeah, if we, if we have, you know, the, the climate matters, like how we are taking care of the planet. All these things that, matter. That I that's think a big thing. Yeah. Was, I won't speak for, I want to speak for most of Christian America, but I won't. I'll speak for myself. <laughs> there was a time where I, I didn't worry about any of that stuff because God's plan was playing out in a soon to come um, in times situate scenario where uh, the, he, however, makes the new heavens, new earth. And it was all part of God's plan. So I didn't have to worry about it. That's, that's changed a lot, but it sounds like, yes, the world can go to the hell in the handbasket and we could send it there. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. Politically, geopolitically, all that stuff. Nukes. Yeah. <laughs> that might change things. Easy now. Another mm. thing I, I noticed personally too is how often pe- most people I'm around are some version of a free will Arminian type uh, that yeah. want to see people make a decision for Christ. But then when we pray, we pray like God controls and violates free will all the time. Yeah, that's a good point. And that didn't die. I mean, I'm, so I'm 40, and I didn't, I didn't <laughs> put that together until fairly recently. And that was one of the things that helped me to, or really jacked up my prayer life, and is, has had me seeking for other, other options or to see what, what other people are doing. Yeah, most people who are Christians, they, they live their life like open theists, like I do. But when they start talking, they talk as if they're not open theists. They talk as if either God does control or could control what's going on. But they'll go ahead and pray for someone to get healed. They'll go ahead and you know think that their prayers matter, their lives matter, etc. Not everybody, but a lot of people do. Um, and open and relational theology provides a theological framework to make sense of these intuitions that most people who believe in God already have. Yeah. The, you, sorry, Scott. Hold on to your thought. The, the prayer thing, if it be your will, you kind of call that a uh, that phrase uh, a cover-your-ass add-on <laughs> to avoid <laughs> tough questions when healing prayers fail. And I love that. Uh, thanks. I, I'm guilty of that a lot. Go ahead, Scott. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I just encourage you to pray. I mean, over and over, we're commanded to. And uh, you know, there's a parable of the um, the lady who goes before the judge, and uh, the judge gets annoyed with her because of her many prayers, and she bugs she bugs him. And uh, that's was an analogy for us to uh, seek God in the, in that way. Um, so I'll just, oh, I'll, if God can get annoyed and frustrated at my prayer life, it's going to happen. I, I guarantee yeah. it. So I'll just encourage I don't, you to continue to to pray. I don't no interpret what theology, theological. Uh, uh, Thanks for the encouragement, Scott. Yeah. I appreciate it. Noted. Yeah. Even that for story, healing. Even, yeah. yeah, that's right. I don't interpret that story as giving an accurate picture of what God is like. I don't think God get an, gets annoyed like the, the illustration said. Right, I of think, course, of course. It's for yeah. us. This is, we keep yeah, the, going to him. Exactly, yeah. yes. Yep, yeah. yep. Because it even says even if an evil judge or whatever. So it's like, 
I think it's I yes. think he uses that word um, or, or word similar. So yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now on um, you know you mentioned miracles and with this with God not being able to uh, heal um, unilaterally or with uh, single handedly, yeah. yes, um, and and he's kind of bound by circumstances and conditions in our cells and our organs and and um, and maybe even our thoughts, because you said our prayers activate or may, might open up other possibilities. So I was just, do you, does, does that change the definition of miracle that you have? Nice. Um, and do you think, so like when, when Jesus is walking and there's a crowd around him and then the lady touches his robe and he feels power go out from him and then she's healed and, all the other healings, you know, he brings Lazarus from the dead. And, you know, I mean, I don't have to probably don't have to go over the healings. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but there are those seem, uh, you know, th- those seem to be unilateral. Well, I mean, there was faith that, you know, Jesus healed them by their faith. Right. But there's no doctor there. They didn't take medicine. Um, sometimes he didn't touch them. Um, so I just, I, you know, just a uh, a common understanding of a miracle, and, and does that change for you, or or how would you define miracle different? And how do you look at those stories of Jesus healing in, in that way? Yeah, I think my uh, theology fits just about every miracle in Scripture. There might be a couple that it would be hard to to work with, but um, just about every one. But my theology doesn't fit the common understanding many people have of what miracles are. And um, in my previous book, The Uncontrolling Love of God, I spend a whole chapter talking about what miracles look like in this kind of scheme. And in order to do that, I decided I would go do a bunch of research on, you know, the different ways people define miracles. And there's no clear definition of a miracle in the Bible. But in the Christian tradition, what people have tended to do is go either toward the idea that God somehow intervenes in a, a situation to bring about a result or interrupts some natural law. Now, the intervention language sounds really odd if you start thinking about it, because it sounds like God wasn't already present and had to step in. But if God is omnipresent, God would never have to come into a situation that God wasn't already there. So intervene is kind of a strange word that we've, we've ended up using. The whole idea of breaking the laws of nature is something that arose because of a philosopher named David Hume. Again, not in Scripture, and, and probably, I don't know about you he guys. Was on the Scripture? <laughs> yeah. I don't know about you guys, but I've never heard somebody in church stand up and say, you know, I'm healed. Thank God the laws of nature have just been interrupted. I mean, it's just not the, it's not the way we think. Not typical. <laughs> no. So in this particular chapter, I define miracles as good, unusual events in which God works in relation to creation. Now, that kind of definition allows for what I call non-coercive miracles or any of the miracles. And then what it asks us to do is to look at the kinds of examples you gave and ask the question, do we have to think that there was some unilateral determination, some single-handed fixing, miracle, healing, whatever going on there? And uh, I think the vast majority of biblical miracles talk about something happening in relation to Jesus, having faith, 
some, you know, the woman touches him, which suggests there's some cooperation going on. Um, I admit that in my scheme, some of what uh, biblical scholars call nature miracles are harder to account for, like Jesus walking on water. You know, I don't think the water molecules have free will and cooperate and, you know, they don't think they have faith, that sort of thing. So um, I appeal to some theories and uh, some some ideas in chaos theory and physics and quantum. I'm not saying that these all solve them, but the the fundamental uh, argument is that we can account for these miracles without having to think that God single-handedly brought them about. It's interesting. There's another another um, aspect. Uh, it, it seems like you know where you talk about God is spirit. Um, and yeah. I think you, from that conclu- from that you draw the conclusion that therefore God, because He's spirit cannot act in the physical world, that he cannot influence physical things. Now, that's not quite it, but it's close. That's quite... I wanted to say because God is spirit, God doesn't have a localized physical body like you and I do that we can use to, you know, do things against other physical bodies. But I really do think God acts in the physical world. Uh, I think God is an omnipresent spirit who has direct causal uh, influence on all things, physical and non-physical, but it, that is different than having a localized body oh, like you yeah, and I have. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, because I was, I was, I was. That's how I read it. That 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 God couldn't act because he he he's bound by our you know the molecules and the the circumstances. Um, uh, you know, and 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 then I just went to well the creation of the world. He obviously <laughs> he obviously did something to physical. <laughs> To physical things in the creation of the world, but but there are other things like uh, you know when Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira uh, died on the spot uh, in in Acts, um, uh, things like that. Uh, ha- that one's that's a story that I, I can account for that story by saying God could kill them without doing it single handedly by doing things to their cells or whatever. But I, I think a better way, and even most conservative scholars say this, that that story doesn't say that God killed Ananias and Sapphira. In fact, uh, Guy at Asbury, conservative biblical scholar Ben Witherington, uh, argues that Peter probably killed them. Uh, this the story itself hmm. doesn't say who oh, is the, the killer there. Yeah, drop dead instantly. But it, yeah. yeah, okay, that's interesting. But going going with what. Uh, with, with your model, though, and, yeah. and we can just use this as an analogy, I guess. Um, uh, but if God is even in the healing, if God is doesn't heal them single-handedly, but and what you just said sounds like He's using the cells, you know, what, what's already there. Um, so, and, and I might go back to Zach's question. Now, what? Uh, so He's influencing, but not single-handedly. But He's right changing the cells right so i mean yeah we're that line of influence but not control it's that right. seems to be blurred a little bit i'm not yeah i'm trying not to blur it i'm trying to say that cells can cooperate or not cooperate and so if god wants to heal and works at the cellular level and you know lures calls persuades influences in some kind of way that in those cases in which cells have the capacity to respond, some of them can respond poorly, and therefore the healing not occur that God wants. Hmm. Um, so I think. Prob- yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. That's all right. 
just uh, kind of two general principles to kind of keep in mind when we're looking at biblical examples. Uh, one, th- at least from my perspective, it's not true for everybody, but from my perspective, the well, first question I kind of ask myself is, is this. Does this story in Scripture explicitly say God alone brought about these results and there wasn't any creaturely contribution whatsoever? Now, when I read the Scripture, I can't find a single thing in the entire Bible that fails at that particular point. Even mm. God hardening Pharaoh's heart, the creation of the world, all these things. This, so on that level, when I look at a, a passage like Ananias and Sapphira or whatever else we want to talk about, I always say, yeah, but does it explicitly say God alone brought it about? And then I say, nope, it doesn't. So this is compatible with my thesis. But then the second question is this. Would a loving God do what's described or want what's described in this passage in the Bible? And here I go to back to what I said earlier. Yeah, there's some passages of Scripture in which I highly doubt God wanted or willed those things, even though the biblical writers say that's what God wanted. So that's a matter of God's love being expressed, not whether or not God could act single-handedly or not. Yeah, I, I agree with that, that the faith, man, God doesn't, you know, he doesn't do much without uh, people, without people's faith. And I, you, you mentioned that verse in the, in the book, uh, uh, that Jesus uh, couldn't heal because of their lack of faith. Yeah. Um, I'll have to talk to Zach about something else later on because it, it would kind of <laughs> go against uh, you know, the whole idea of forgiveness, uh, you know. But, uh, you know, God forgiving unilaterally. But um, uh, you, you mentioned the... Um, well, let me jump in oh, there just yeah, real yeah. quick. Maybe this will help. I like to put it this way. Um, I acted without anyone cajoling me or anyone to ask my wife or my fiance to be my wife. But she had to respond appropriately to say yes to my proposal for us to be married. We can say say the same thing with forgiveness. God acts to forgive. But if you and I don't accept it, even though that forgiveness is offered to us, we're not going to act in light of it. It isn't that God's saying, well, you didn't accept it. That pisses me off. Now I'm going to hurt you. It's that we're taking the we're um, we're reaping the natural negative consequences that come from saying no to God's forgiving love. That's not God's fault. It's our stupidity. That reminds me of I, on Easter. I saw a uh, a meme. It's a picture of. Let's see. Let me find it. Oh, there's a lot of pictures that my wife sent me. A lot of memes. Uh, It's Jesus (laughs) standing at the door saying, let me in. And the other person, why? So I can save you. From what? From what I'm going to do if you don't let me in. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Which is a simplified, and it's, you know, some people might not think it's fair, but it, it was amusing to me. And it leads me to a question that I probably shouldn't ask because it has a potential to be a huge can of worms, but, um, well, first of all, how are you doing on time? Do you have a few more minutes? Yep, I'm good. Okay. Um, you talk about it a little bit towards the end, but with this, our choices matter, and in God being un, like completely uncontrolling love uh, to God's core, it's got to have implications for the afterlife. Mm, yeah. 
Uh, do you have a few thoughts on that? And I, I know we could spend a lot of time on debating that, and I don't want to. I don't want to do that. We can do that after. Too late. Let's get you a beer after. Open the can of worms. Yeah. Well, let me begin with what my view can't do, just so we have it. The elephant okay. in the room on the table. My view doesn't make it possible for God to guarantee that God will single-handedly redeem all creation. A lot of people, when they think about eschatology, they want a God who is going to guarantee, either through kicking our butts or doing something, that uh, either everybody goes to heaven, universalism, or you know the good people go to heaven, the bad people go to hell for eternity. My view doesn't guarantee that in the sense that God alone makes that happen. But my view has guarantees that I think are preferable to that one. <laughs> one is that uh, God never gives up on anyone at any time in this life and the next. So God doesn't send people to hell for eternity because of what they did in this life. When we go into the afterlife, God continues to invite us to uh, salvation and a life of love. Now, secondly, it's also guaranteed that God will never force anyone into heaven. So we can continue to say no to God's loving offer in this life and the next. And when we do, we will reap the natural negative consequences that come from saying no to love. It's also guaranteed, in my view, that those who say yes to God on a repeated kind of way develop certain habits, certain character. In the Christian tradition, we call this Christ-likeness. And so that they become molded in the image of Christ and, you know, can are able to then enjoy eternal bliss in that kind of way. Um, so this is a God who never gives up. Now, I think because this God never gives up and God uh, and, and the afterlife is a mighty long time, hmm. I have the hope that all creation will be uh, will be redeemed. But it's not the kind of guarantee that other theologies have that still have a God who could single-handedly, you know, decide to save everybody or, you know, separate the sheep from the goats or annihilate some and just save the good ones or whatever. Um, so that's how I kind of, in broad brushstrokes, that's how I think about the afterlife and eschatology. Yeah, that's good. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, well, I'll just leave it alone. <laughs> uh, I'll say good... one Say one more thing about that. I was speaking in North Carolina two weeks ago, and uh, someone asked me that question in the Q&A, and I sort of ex said what I said to you guys. And this woman came up to me, and she said, oh, thank you so much for saying that stuff about the afterlife. She said, my son has been troubled since a kid, and he committed suicide. And to have the idea that God doesn't give up on him, that in the afterlife, God continues to pursue that gives me so much comfort because now I can have the hope that he does spend eternity in bliss and I might see him again. And so I think that's a real advantage to my view. Besides, I think it makes sense with the broad biblical witness of God's love. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I resonate with the hopefulness of that. And like, I, while I, I would never make a dogmatic claim about that being the case, like the the possibility of the possibility of that is just i don't know like even the idea of how we experience god's love being a version of heaven and hell and i don't i don't know where to go with that but that's a fun little mind experiment for me is that yeah. if if you're rejecting god's love it, might, it heaven and hell might be the same place it's how you're receiving that love 
And I know I'm not making a biblical claim or anything, Scott, so. Sounds like it. It's fun for me to explore. Yeah, you're right. It's not biblical at all. Yeah, it might not be. (laughs) I love it. So what is your... um, I was going to ask earlier about an example. Would you would you have an example of a, a cooperative prayer, like in light of something like uh, Sri Lanka, that where those churches were just bombed on Easter? Yeah. Um, what would praying for those people? What would that look like cooperatively? Uh, your friend um, Mark Harris, we had him on a while back. Oh, nice! And you quote him a couple times. And he calls it conspiring prayer. Or I don't know if he got that from you or collusion yeah. prayer. It sounds like they're similar. <laughs> how would you, yeah, <laughs> colluding I prayer. I love it. <laughs> how would we, how would one that feels driven to go to God about these terrible things that are happening, what does a cooperative yeah. prayer look like to you? Yeah, well, when, when I pray for people involved in horrific situations like that, I begin with the assumption God loves everybody. God's already doing the utmost possible given the circumstances, you know, the environment, all the things there. So I'm not going to have to twist God's arm to get off his butt and do something. God's already doing it. Then I, I assume that um, in order for the most good that can come out of this, God to squeeze something good out of the bad God didn't want in the first place, that God needs cooperation at various kinds of levels. And then I say to myself, okay, what can I do and what, how might I influence others to cooperate with God's loving action and situation? So I might pray something like, God, give me insight, discernment, bring to mind ideas and ways I might respond to this horrible situation to work with you to bring something loving in the midst of this horror. And then if I have sort of things come to mind, I might have to try to discern whether I think that was inspired by the Holy Spirit or just, you know, bad pizza from last night or whatever. Uh, But that's kind of how I pray. I'm I'm asking God to give me ideas and insights in what I might do to be the hands and feet of God in this situation. Now, something like that that's so far away, it's going to probably be, you know, most of the time it's sending money or writing letters to people I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a lot different than when I'm in my own family, in my own house, and there's something gone wrong. Then all of a sudden I feel like God can give me possibilities to act in ways that are probably going to be more directly influential. The literal, the hands and feet. You'll be like the hands and feet of Jesus. Right, yeah. yeah. That's right. To strike or, down the nations, rule with a rod of iron. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> What's that? What are you guys talking about? <laughs> mm. Sorry, I'm back. Oh, I'm man. back, guys. <clears throat> All right. So um, one more thing from me is, do you think, is it possible, I know you talked about God's love being uncontrolling for everything. Is it yeah. possible it could only apply to image bearers and that other aspects God might control, but he won't control people as image bearers. And uh, basically, I want to know if it's possible that praying for traveling mercies is still a thing, (laughs) because maybe he would control traffic or that, well, I guess then he's controlling the speed the cars are going. That's not good. Like, work with me here. Is it possible that it only applies to people 
and the animals or different, you know, they nature don't have free will. might be controlled. Because they don't have free will. Maybe. Or I don't maybe know. that's the question. Yeah. Right. yeah. Does an electrical I, failure have free will? I don't think electrical failures have free will. I think my dog has free will, but I don't think electric, electricity does. Um, I want to say God can't control animals and lesser entities in reality, in part because if God could, God really sucks at keeping the world a safe place. Yeah. Like, you know, it's praying for traveling mercies and then people getting wrecked. You're thinking, okay, what happened there? You know, yeah. God's, you have to say it's a part of God's plan or whatever. And then you're getting all those bad. Yeah. The tragedies still happen. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, you shot that down so, pretty quick. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would I like it. to pray that the free will of my dog would stop killing my grass in the backyard. <laughs> <laughs> stop, uh, stop feeding him water. <laughs> uh, Do you remember the last time you prayed uh, intercessorily? Does that work? I do, I do that all the time. It's just that I try to pray now in ways that I think make sense theologically. Okay. Um, yeah, so I'm assuming that God's working on behalf of others. So okay, then my intercessor yeah. prayer is saying, look, God, how teach me how I might work with you on behalf of others. Yep. Okay, I like Good. that. Anything else, Scott? I know you got a list. That's like five pages long. All right. <laughs> 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 All right, final question, and just use your imagination. Um, imagine you're walking through the gates of the New Jerusalem, you know, at the end of all things, or you getting to heaven, however that looks, and you're walking through the ever-open gates, and you get somebody on your arm escorting you, living or dead. Who is that? And they're playing your favorite walk-in music. What are you walking into, and who are you walking in with? Who's your high person? Ah, my high person is going to be tough. The music that jumped quickly to mind is U2's uh, "Where the Streets Have No Name." Nice. So that would be a nice, you know, entry into yeah. into into bliss. Who is leading me in? Hmm. I'll go. This is not a strong take, but I'll go with a guy who I admire quite a bit—a guy named John Wesley, theologian from the 17th century, actually 18th century, 1700s. Um, so why not John Wesley? I like it. Nice. It's acceptable. Uh, <laughs> it's acceptable whether or not I liked it. So <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> we'll play some U2 on our outgoing oh, music. There, <laughs> there you go. It sounds good. <laughs> you know, one of the, man, we, we got to let you go, but, uh, I listened to you on homebrewed Christianity and you and Trip were nerding out a little bit about how the Bible doesn't teach creation out of nothing. Creation ex nihilo. Yeah which was fascinating. I'd never thought of that before. That was really fascinating. And you were on fairly recently, so people can look that up if they want. That was a fun conversation to hear you guys. Yeah, I've, got a, I've got a book half written on that subject. So one of these days, oh, we'll finish well, it. If you'll have us, we'd, or if we would love to have you if you would come back on when that's Hey, that'd that's be close. great. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, yeah. I enjoyed the book, God Can't. Um, and what's the best way for people to get a hold of you? Well, they could visit my website, which is my full name, thomasjord.com. That's thomas and J-A-Y-O-O-R-D.com. 
Um, you can also find me on various social media channels, et cetera. But, um, or you could pick up probably the best way to buy the book is on Amazon. Yeah. All, All right. right. Thank you so much, Thomas. Yeah, thank you, Thomas. Yeah. Thanks a lot, man. Yeah, for your time. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. And good luck for the future. And hopefully we'll hear from you in a little bit. Sounds good. All right. All right. Well, that was, that was good. What'd you guys think? I like that you, uh, you didn't, you, you got some of your things that you want to talk about and you went, you discussed it. Just say it, Zach. No, it wasn't, uh, I really appreciate that you didn't wait till the guest was gone to voice some of your concerns. Internet, make it known. Zach really appreciates me. Are we me. still recording? Yeah. Oh, we are. Yeah. <laughs> you heard it here first. Oh, I appreciate that, dude. God can't. God can't stop Scott from asking those How questions. How to believe in God and love after tragedy, abuse, or and other, other evils. Oh, man. It is challenging, but if you just wake up to the fact, uh, like I do hopefully every day, where I find little contradictions, where I say I believe one thing, but my actions betray that. Mm. Prayer was one of them. Basically praying for God to control people when I'm asking for God to save people or to basically asking God to make them make a decision, which is counterintuitive to free will, which I would have also said I believed in. So prayers just to me is a lot of partnering with God. I mean, we're partnering, but ultimately trying to find, you know, where does God want us in this world or in our lives? And I, I liked what he had to say in regards to that. And that you, you just can't, God won't just step in and single-handedly change something that wasn't um, or wasn't going to be. Yeah. I, I like the direction. Um, I, there was some of the conclusion and I, and you know, those are the questions that I brought up uh, at some point, at some point it seems like, the idea of, of a miracle, God doing something that is contrary to nature, um, that you, that, that idea would dissolve, um, that, that God can only work within, uh, uh, the things that are naturally, uh, possible in that circumstance. Like your cells have to be able to be healed. Um, I, I, I just, I don't, I don't think that that is, the necessary conclusion of the healing stories that mm-hmm. that God can, despite uh, any any uh, human or natural limitations, God can heal. Like there would be supernatural things happening that we'd be like, "How did that yeah. just happen?" Yeah, like uh, dead cells coming back to life where they couldn't do that naturally or with any doc- resurrection. Doctor. Yeah, even <laughs> even. Uh, uh, the the main one, uh, yeah, being dead in a grave for three well, days. Well, he was and there. He saw a body. The... What about the people that are dust? Well, yeah, and, and there's supposed to be a resurrection at the at the end, in the end times when um... unless you're cremated. Sorry, folks. Scott <laughs> yeah. said it. Mm. Yeah, I'm just kidding. So, there's people that believe that though. So, uh, um, I, I yeah, I think that God can do not anything, but uh, beyond what is in the natural. Uh, uh, circumstance, and I think he can uh, he can control inanimate objects. I I believe that the Job story is uh, real. Um, so if he inspired a fish somehow to swallow Job, I think you mean Jonah. Uh, Job, Jonah, 
same person. Joba. Uh, Joba. Um, <laughs> same person. Yeah. And Joba then, in the wind. And then to spit him out on the, the exact beach that he needed to be spit spat upon. Uh, uh, I I think, yeah. But I but I so I'm, I I like his direction. Just that that the last conclusion. Uh, yeah, the Jonah not on one. Board with. The Jonah one reminds me of the what what is the Bible discussion. So if you have if you see a lot of those stories as literal, um, and this is not a dig, it could be harder to come to some of the conclusions he's coming to in the book, and that's a reasonable mm. expectation. And mm. the the good news is though we've it's been mentioned multiple times is that. If something is true, it's God's. So asking questions, reading this material that might be foreign, it's okay to explore it. Hold on to what you know, what you believe you know, and explore it and see if it makes sense with what he's saying. And if it's true, it's God's. Be free to leave behind what you discover to not be true. Yeah. So often it's like tied to our identity and we... And I, I did have a question about uh, when he says that the the majority, or the the uh, he might have said majority text. I don't know if he used that, that those words, but uh, uh, I was kind of thinking, well, um, over and over in the Old Testament, you have uh, like yeah. God doing stuff that I and I asked this question as well. What do you consider that evil or doing harm? Because he uses that phrase, "Love yeah. does does no harm." Um, but you have, <laughs> you have that a lot in the old Testament. Right. Um, so I, w- I wanted to ask them about, um, well, really, I mean, is that the major- majority seems to be God does violence in this world. Yeah. Um, so that was just, you know, that's just a, another question. Um, I wanted to, to have, yeah, well, I'm glad you didn't wait to ask your other ones. Well, I want him, I wanted him to develop his, uh, you know his book, and yeah, we were getting to know each other, and yeah. Uh, also, I noticed in the book, I'm pretty sure there is, and definitely in this conversation, it was solidifying in my mind that he intentionally does not use gendered language when talking about God. He'll, he'll say point. God when God does this that God is doing and God's self. Like there's a lot of like just saying God, not saying He. Not going back into he. Yeah, I think at one point he he mentions um, usually referred to as a him or something. Um, but yeah, and I find that uh, you know I find that odd. Um, um, and then people I think you know like you you might be suggesting um, that God has no gender. Um, well, whether whether or not we we have that thought. The Bible refers to um, it. God, God has revealed Himself as that gender. Um, so if you, you know, if, if there's a question, uh, if you want to de-gender God, well, that's the way He's chosen to reveal Himself. Um, I mean, that's what the Bible says. Uh, yeah, the the prophets of God that God sent. Reveal God in that way. Yeah, yes. I gotcha. Yes, and I I just appreciate it because, um, I think what's lost uh, over the years and is being rediscovered is uh, male female being equal parts of the image of God, 
And so if you're if you're only referring to God as a he, that that theologies based on that have been problematic when it comes to abuse. And well, stuff like that. those are bad. So those might be bad theologies, but you correct the theology, not the revelation. So God has a penis? Actually, male. Uh, it's in your pants. That's Mark Driscoll. God's penis people. is in your pants. Yeah, if you want to. <laughs> if, 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 uh, if that's if that's the. The context that you uh, want to wrap it in. Okay. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll wrap this up. Just yeah. like. I didn't Thanks, even guys. mean that, but now, now I get what you. Yeah, I get. Hmm. I'm not gonna apologize because I didn't mean it that way, but. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks, Scott. Hey, thank you. Thanks, Thomas. Yes. Thanks, Thomas Jeff. J. Ord. Jeff. Thanks, Jeff, Jeff? Jeffrey, Jeff, S. Pearson, Esquire. He has a small bladder. Happy or a, Easter. Or an enlarged prostate, either one of those. Oh, yeah, he just got his knee scoped, so to get down the stairs, I, I haven't installed the lift that he requested to get up the stairs yet. Oh, so. <laughs> All right. All right, until next time.